These young women walked into what they all had reason to believe were business meetings. I can still see it, the hotel room, the floor plan. He kept trying to touch me. I asked him to leave me alone. Instead, they say he met them with threats and sexual demands. I was young, scared. Hi. We're from the New York Times. I believe he used to work for Harvey Weinstein. It's definitely a woman's story, and I think that's appropriate, obviously, because the story of the Me Too movement is also a woman's story, but also because journalism is increasingly a woman's story. Our guest today is Eric Alterman, a CUNY Distinguished Professor of English at Brooklyn College, an award-winning journalist, author of 12 books, and he wrote the nation's liberal media column for 25 years. Back in December, we caught up with Eric to chat about the film She Said and his favorite films about what he calls the embattled craft of journalism. Here is my co-host, Elise Bryant. So what's your favorite film of the first movies that you saw the first time you went to a real movie theater? Well, I remember the first movie I ever saw, but it scared me a lot. Um, Old Yeller. I was four, and I remember it being one of the first nightmares I ever had was that night, which is funny. Have you seen The Fablemans? Yes. Because that's what happens to him. His parents take him to the movies, and right. then he, right. first movie, and he ends up having nightmares. Greatest show on earth, right? It's right. My, uh, my life has not turned out like Steven Spielberg's. Okay. So what's, what of the ones in, at your youngest age was your favorite? I remember loving Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Oh, yes. It was, it was the songs, wasn't it, Eric? <laughs> I don't know. I tell you, though, when I was 10, I saw my very first pair of breasts in The Godfather. So I'm also attached to that. <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the wedding scene when Michael gets married. I don't even remember that. I just, I, 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 the, the horse's head kind of stopped me cold. So I saw, she said, Tuesday night, me and my wife were the only ones in the theater. It was basically a private screening. And so I've been talking to everybody about it since then. And nobody has heard of this film. So I thought we'd start out. Can you just sort of recap the basic story for our listeners, what it's, what it's about? Well, the title is one of the problems. She said. Right. It's a good Beatles song. But... Right. <laughs> right. Anyway, so she said is um, the dramatization of the book written by two New York Times reporters about their quest to bring the story of Harvey Weinstein's exploitation of women, um, including up to and including multiple rapes, apparently, um, to the screen. It's kind of cast in the same way that All the President's Men was uh, back in the 70s, and um, Spotlight was, uh, I guess, about 10 years ago. I forget the exact year. But it's much more female-focused, which I found significant and interesting because journalism has become much more female focused. Um, so both reporters are female. It's a female oriented story. It's, you know, it's, it's getting women to talk and, and, and of course women are probably better at that. And, but, um, there's two things that are interesting about the female ism of the movie. One is that, uh, as I said, uh, more and more women are in dominant roles in journalism. The, the main editor that the two women report to is also a woman. And uh, 
that has something to do with the fact that uh, journalism doesn't pay very well, except at the very top. There's an enormous split, like so many businesses, where all the money goes to the top people, who many of whom make over a million dollars a year, and then everyone else is supposed to either have a trust fund or or live in poverty. Um, and the movie kind of skirts over that because the New York Times has kind of fantasy feel to it in the movie. Uh, and the second thing is is that uh, the women have problems in their personal lives that you don't see in these other journalistic hero movies. One one of them is suffering from postpartum depression. One of them has very young children and happens to have a wonderfully supportive husband who's like a dream husband, as far as I can tell. It's definitely a woman's story, and I think that's appropriate, obviously, because the story of the Me Too movement is also a woman's story but also because journalism is increasingly uh, a woman's story. When I taught, I don't teach uh, journalism anymore. I, I moved over to be an English professor, but when I did, it was not unusual for me to have only one or two male students in a class of 20 or 25. That's uh, fascinating. I had no idea. Yeah, well, um, you know, the journalism business is in kind of perpetual crisis, I guess. Uh, we've lost uh, up up towards 40% of editorial jobs uh, in the past, I would say, 15 years. Certainly since uh, 2008, when things weren't going so great to begin with, and we had that crisis in advertising and a lot of uh, publications shut down. And, and, even, and even that is probably understating things. The New York Times claims to have, who, by the way, we're talking the day after their one-day strike, which is relevant to the issues I'm discussing. Mm -hmm. um, the New York Times claims, I think, 1,600 editorial employees, which is about double any other publication. But a lot of these editorial employees are in jobs that don't involve reporting or editing. They're, they're in tech jobs. They're in engagement jobs. Um, so th these are often counted as editorial employees. What you end up with is that reporters and editors are doing jobs that used to be done by three or four people. Um, and it's a much harder life. And again, uh, the numerous publications are telling journalists to, uh, take unpaid or weak unpaid, you know, in order to meet, uh, meet their bottom line. They're owned increasingly by, uh, rapacious, um, private equity firms that, uh, are demanding enormous profits and sometimes selling them off for parts and particularly real estate. It, 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 the crisis is uh, is growing. This past week, we've we've seen thousands of uh, layoffs in the same business. So, I have to say, you know, I believe that you we can't survive as a democracy without vibrant journalism. On the one hand, on the other hand, when I was a professor of both English and journalism, I wouldn't let my students major in journalism if they wanted to be my advisees. I said you have to switch to English. You can always do journalism if you want to, but I want you to learn something in college. And by the way, I don't feel good about sending you into journalism. The only, I know I've been talking for a long time now. The only people I send to journalism who come to ask my advice are people who have a particular specialty that will make them valuable throughout the business. But people who just want to have the kind of career that people used to expect to have uh, in, the, in the, when I was growing up, I don't think that's possible anymore. Uh-huh. I hear you. 
I, I, I'm a member of, uh, as is Chris, the Washington Baltimore News Guild. And um, the Washington Post is currently in uh, negotiations uh, and having a hard time of it. So what do you think of the strike, the one-day strike? What's your opinion on that? Well, my partner, Laura, was in terrible pain over not doing Wordle and her crossword puzzle. Lisa, too. Um, that was the hardest part of the strike. I, I talked about it on my radio show yesterday. I said, we can skip the news, but I don't know. Because people get these streaks going, right? Yeah, they had a, um, they had a strike Wordle. Somebody made up a strike world. <laughs> and um, and I watched her do it last night. And when it completed, it played Solidarity Forever. Oh, oh wow. Very cool. Uh, <laughs> but uh, listen, it was it was helpful. Um, the New York Times is obviously an enormous platform. And uh, it made people aware of some of the, of the issues involved. And, you know, I wouldn't want to try and live. I mean, this is the thing. I wouldn't want to try and live in New York City anywhere within commuting distance of the New York Times on $65,000 a year, um, even as a single person. Uh, and, and, uh, and yet, uh, that's, that's the business. It's a business of squeezing labor to the point where, um, you know, you're, you're asked to take a vow of poverty. Uh, again, unless you're at the very top. I mean, if you look at the anchors of news station of, uh, television news, you know, those people can make as much as 10, $15 million a year, even, even a little bit more than that. Um, the editors of the top publications make about a million, you know, that's about average. Some make a little less, some make a little more. Um, and the business side makes money, makes very good salary because they're competing with other people in other businesses, not in the news business. But if you're going to be a, a writer, uh, either in magazines, magazines used to pay considerably better than newspapers. They don't pay very well anymore because of the web. I had a friend who had a column in Time Magazine uh, many years ago. I was paid $2,500 a column to be in Time Magazine. And then they said, we're only going to run you on the web and we're going to pay you $250. Jesus. Um, so, so the web has really flattened salaries uh, uh, to the point where it's, it's, it's almost like they used to, you used to be able to make it. If you were, if you were a very well respected magazine writer, you could make a good living, not quite a lawyer's living, but you could go out to dinner with your lawyer friends and, and not sweat it. Those days I think are also over, uh, particularly the security that comes just from having talent as a writer. Um, so, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a depressing story all around. I mean, the, there, the, the good news is that there's a, proliferation of um, institutions, specialty institutions, where if you, have a, if you have a specific talent, you can sell it and you can find your audience. And, and some of these look like they might be profitable. But again, what, what we're seeing, like I, I, I cover the media. And for me, it's great because there's so much information out there and I have all day to find it and I know how to do it. So I'm a, I'm a very well-informed citizen, but unless you have all day to do it or a few hours a day to do it, and most people don't, then we're creating news ghettos and news wealth. Um, whereas in the olden days, we had a country where people basically all shared information and could agree on reality. We don't anymore. So there are a lot of implications of what's going on. The, the uh, siloization of news is, is another problem that has arisen from the collapse of mainstream 
reporting as a business. So Elise, let me just sort of get a quick reaction from you uh, about the film. Um, I guess both as a, as a woman and as a, as a, as a news guild member. Yeah. I'm thinking about the women that I know who, who work for the Washington Post and other newspapers. Um, I, I walked into the movie totally like, whatever, you know, I got to see this movie. Chris and I are going to be talking to Eric. I would, I would get to it. And, um, as it unfolded, I was just in love with the whole, with the cinematography of it. Um, with the characterization of it, I, there were some fantastic performances. The the woman who was in I can't remember if she was in Brooklyn or Bronx uh, that um, uh, that the uh, reporter uh, went to see and was went, went to talk to her mother, but she answered the door, went, disappeared. In that woman, in that in that moment, that woman gave one of the most amazing performances. I totally believed her knew exactly what was going on in her head and I was I was captivated. It was short, just a moment. Uh and that happened throughout the film. And, you know, I wasn't expecting like, you know, here's the modern woman, you know, in the newsroom and with the family thing. I wasn't expecting any of that. I thought just see just the story of, you know, how this unfolded, you know, the, the telling of um uh Harvey uh Weinstein's um um exposure for the for the criminal uh, person that he is. What I loved about the movie is something that I've always respected about journalism because I'm so bad at it myself, is the frustration that one goes through trying to get people to talk who don't have an interest in talking to you, who, who knocking on doors, banging one's heads against the wall, um, pleading with them, trying to figure out a way to reach them when it's not in their interest to do it. I never felt good about getting people in trouble. I never felt good about, I, I don't even like to ask people for anything that they have that I want. I don't like to be in that situation. <laughs> how were you a reporter? Is that, that's, I, I was a terrible reporter. <laughs> I mean, I was, only, I was only a good reporter if it was a topic where people wanted to talk. Um, but, uh, and that's I, like, I don't really report. You know, I, I, I critique. Uh, I, I examine, I synthesize, but I do very little reporting. Most of my reporting is done reading uh, because I, I'm uncomfortable in that role. And and these women uh, stood up to that repeatedly because the, they were talking to people who had signed NDAs and people who had been threatened. And uh, and they they were honest, saying, you know, we'll do our best to protect your, your name as much as we can, but it's really up to you. And I And I found those scenes... First of all, they were very well handled in the movie, showing people how tough it is to be this kind of journalist, but also emotionally resonant uh, in a way that the other male-driven movies are not. They're they're a little bit more exciting, but they're not they're not as real. Um, you know, I think men and women are different. Uh, I'm not saying nature or nurture, but they 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 go about life differently, and and women have skills that men don't, and these were on display in this movie and. And I have always liked women better for some of the reasons that you see there. Did that, did that resonate for you as well, Elise? Uh, yes, it did. Yeah. I mean, I, the hard work of it uh, was, 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 was brought out in a way that I've not, not seen in any of the film. Uh, and I, I agree with you totally, Eric, the, the persistent trying to get that, trying to get people to talk and, and knowing, knowing as a woman, 
why you wouldn't want to talk. You know, I mean, I, I do want people to see the film. It's, it's a it's a good film as a movie and it's educational. But I would I would be critical of it's sort of it's kind of a fantasy of how great working in journalism can be. It's it's a nicer New York Times than the New York Times is. And the New York Times is one of the nicer places to work in all journalism. There's, you know, one one change I didn't talk about is that the growth and jobs have all been at major institutions like the Times and the Post uh, and and other institutions that serve national audiences, whereas the loss of jobs has been in local institutions by and large, and those haven't been replaced. So being a journalist, I mean, I remember there was a paper, it might have even been the Boston Globe, where they were, the journalists were asked to deliver that paper. Um, like, but the New York Times, I mean, there's a lot of backbiting, there's a lot of complaining, there's a lot of fetching, there's a lot of internal dissension. People are jealous of each other and envious of each other and get angry at each other. But in this movie, everybody loves each other. Everybody's completely supportive. Nobody has a bad word to say about anyone. And again, the lighting is really nice. Uh, they do have a nice cafeteria up there, but um, life is not as, li as, as nice as this. Um, and, uh, and, and that would have maybe taken away from the theme of the movie, but I don't want people to think that journalism is as generally as cushy as it is here. I mean, if, if, if the New York Times actually does have, let's say, a thousand actual editorial employees, there are a thousand of the luckiest journalists in the country out of, a, you know, out of a tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. Um, and uh, I mean, the, the other movie I wrote about uh, is, is in some ways, I mean, it's, it's the absolute other extreme, but it has something to say about how, how, how badly many journalists are, are treated. Elise? Well, it occurred to me, uh, especially about the, as we pointed out earlier, uh, about the perfect dad um, that the one reporter had, husband dad, uh, is that it is a Hollywood film. It's not a documentary. Yes. It's fictionalized in the same way that All the President's Men was fictionalized and Spotlight was fictionalized. I, didn't, I don't remember any of those movies seeing the kind of backstabbing, competitive, or just, you know, conflict. Uh, driven inner workings of the newsroom of the, the press room. None of them do that. They all they all focus on the, the drama of the story. That's and true. I think That's that um, in, in this case, um, they really took the time to tell the story of each of the women. And I, and I think that there were some in terms of in terms of the newsroom. Um, uh, I, I certainly got that. You know, sort of like what I kept seeing was sort of like really. Um, all the stuff going on. I'm like, what, what, what are all these other, other people doing? Where is the computer? I mean, Apple must have gotten something out of this. I mean, you're right about the movies, but the expense that they went to for this one story, the flying around the world and around the country, that's pretty rare. So the New York Times does that increasingly rarely, but they can do it. Whereas the expense of this story, I mean, it's no coincidence that the New Yorker and the New York Times are the two publications that broke the story together because they're they're the two two of the wealthiest publications there are, and they can commit uh, resources for journalism's sake. I actually once I was once uh, I wrote a long essay for the New Yorker about the news business about newspapers, and uh, David Remnick, the editor, was actually editing me personally. I was in his office, and I was pointing out that New York Times was uh, losing uh, losing a lot of money covering the war in Iraq because so many newspapers and publications had left the story and uh 
And so he called the editor of the New York Times at the time while we were like fact-checking the piece. And he said, how much are you spending in Iraq? Because nobody wants to advertise next to a war, you know? So, um, so there was no question that the New York Times would stay in Iraq and keep its own bureau there and have a staff. But that's, but that's not true of most publications. There are very few publications that, that, that stay in dangerous, expensive places. And this story, I don't know that it was dangerous, but it was very expensive. And it was no short, it was far from a short thing. And that's why it took so long for people to, uh, one of the reasons it took so long for people to get this story, because the resources it required were never committed. I think a lot of people who are not in the business don't understand that, um, you know, because, you know, it's on Facebook and I reposted it. That that makes it true, right? We're having this problem, I think, right now with Twitter because Elon Musk thinks that he knows what the truth is. This is another part of the crisis of journalism is the role of social media. Uh, in part, it, it has led people to not want to pay, to, to think that journal, journalism should be free when it's very expensive to produce. But also, it's the issue you're talking about, that news comes now from nowhere, comes from everywhere and therefore nowhere. And, you know, I, I do teach uh, research techniques to my students uh, in the class. I, I make them do a research paper, and uh, I spend forever demanding that they pay attention to their sources. I give them a hierarchy of the type of sources that they can use. And, and actually, number one is the New Yorker. And number two are peer-reviewed articles because I've been fact-checked by the New Yorker and it's tougher than a peer-review. Hey, once, uh, I love this story. I was quoting Lisa Simpson. No, I was quoting, I was, Lisa, I was quoting Lisa, Lisa Simpson. I, I wasn't even quoting Lisa Simpson. I was quoting, I was quoting that kid that lives next door with the glasses. And, and he said, and he said to, he said to a Washington Post journalist in the Simpsons, Ha ha, your medium is dying. That's why I quoted him. And, uh, and, and the New Yorker got the episode to fact check it to see if he really said that. But they weren't sure that, that he had said that. They looked up and they got the script. And the script didn't say, ha ha, your medium is dying. The script said, he, he, your medium is dying. Uh, you, yeah, it's, see, it's, there you go. Fake news, right. Eric. Fake news, man. <laughs> but I'm saying, so that's why I always put the New Yorker above peer review. Um, but today, uh, as you say, if you get it on Facebook or God forbid, whatever TikTok is, yeah, I'm getting old here, um, <laughs> or Twitter, frequently you don't know where the news is coming from. And it's, and, and, uh, and it's very easy to take advantage of people like that. Some people don't care uh, about putting up, quote, genuinely fake news because it's profitable. And some people do it for exploitative purposes. I wrote one column last year about all these right-wing publications that are seeking to fill the gaps in news deserts by pretending to be news sources when in fact they're propaganda sources for right-wing causes and right-wing politicians and that's that's becoming increasingly common and a big problem uh and uh and so um yeah social media competing with um media where uh people try to authenticate the truth and you have on the one hand an entire movement that has captured one of the two major parties downgrading the very idea of that. And on the other hand, this enormously profitable and cheap way to reach people with lies, it, it, it makes one pessimistic about the future. Again, it creates a desert where people who want the truth can go to the right kinds of sources 
uh, like the New York Times and the New Yorker, and 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 know that, uh, and and people who who are just, you know, doing going on with their lives and doing their jobs, and used to settle down with the newspaper or this or the seven o'clock news, are are victims of disinformation, uh, without exception. Okay, last question. You have this. Uh... This list of uh, other great movies about uh, journalism. I I like the list. It's uh, made me want to go back and rewatch a lot of them. Um, and uh, we will put a link in, in the show notes. But I picked out a few which I thought were not. I sort of had to think. Oh yeah, that is about journalism. And so I thought uh, we're not going to go through the whole list. I just picked out a few to to wrap up with. Um, ground. And I, I, what I wanted to do is just say a few words about it and why you picked it. So um, Groundhog Day. Well, I picked Groundhog Day because it's it's one of the great comedies ever made. Yes, it is. Um, but also because there's a series of movies on my list which demonstrate how entertainment has captured television journalism to the point where, like, news is its own special category. And Groundhog Day demonstrates, like, Bill Murray is reporting on this Groundhog Day celebration. There's really no harm in it, uh, depending on how how much resources many resources are committed to that kind of reporting but that kind of reporting has kind of swallowed genuine reporting and and you can see how important it is to the station that they get this story right and and it it drives bill i mean that and the plot drive bill murray insane so but i also just love that movie I do too. I do too. All right. Uh, Philadelphia story, just because I thought you had a, a really good analysis of it. A quick comment on Philadelphia story. It's a movie that tells people that you should stay in your own class. Right. You shouldn't, you shouldn't try and reach above the class you're born into. And the journalist is really of the wrong class. And, and that's, that's the blessing of that movie. So it's a movie that I'm at great pains to love because I really do love it, but it, it makes me angry. We should talk about, um, uh, His Girl Friday, because in that movie, Cary Grant plays the journalist. He he, he flips, and it's and it's a and he plays the he plays a beloved journalist who's of the same class that Jimmy Stewart was in in the Philadelphia Story, and it's got one of the two or three best, maybe one of the three best scripts of all time. Sorry, Lise, we're just totally geeking out on on these <laughs> old films here. Um, jump in any time if you've got one of these styles. I just have one or two more before we wrap up. His Girl Friday reminded me of it. It's his girl Friday. Yes. Uh, and then there's Lois Lane, who always had to be rescued by Superman. And then there are these two women. Yeah. This movie, good point. She yeah. said that's a long way from. Oh, Lois yeah. And from yeah. his girl Friday. Oh, Although good. Lois Lane good was good always catch. taking Jimmy Olsen to school. I'm not talking about yeah. Jimmy Olsen. I'm talking about being rescued. Yeah. Oh, rescued. yeah. That's true. That's true. Uh, these women were not rescued. Uh, between the lines, you, you say it's your favorite unknown movies. So directed by a woman, Joan Mecklen Silver, who died a few years ago and directed a whole bunch of great movies. It's kind of about the real paper and the Boston Phoenix, more, more so about the real paper. And it's just a wonderful movie. It's, it's, it is my favorite unknown movie uh, about this subculture of a scruffy, underpaid, somewhat bohemian journalist fighting the man. It also has terrific music. It's got Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes or, or the band in the in the in the movie. And it's a wonderful sense. I once when I was growing up, um, a friend of mine's father was president of Paramount Pictures. And he had a theater at his house. And we went to a movie at his house 
I can almost give you the date because my girlfriend broke up with me a week before my birthday or a week that, after that, my birthday. It's, that, it's that, that that'll, that'll make it memorable. Yeah. So it was, it was, um, January, late January, 1977. And he showed us Saturday Night Fever in his, before it was released. And, uh, and I turned to him when it was over. I said, do you really think people are going to go for that? <laughs> Good call, Eric. And he said, uh, you must like a different kind of movie. And I said, yeah, I really like this movie Between the Lines. He goes, yeah, you're not the audience for this movie. <laughs> and that sort of wraps it all up in a nutshell. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect place to end. Eric, really wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for a okay. great column. Thanks for the list of the movies I'm going to be watching over the next couple of weeks and rewatching. Um, keep up the great columns. I look forward to having you back. Talk more about okay. movies. Happy to. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks to both of you. Eric Alterman, CUNY Distinguished Professor of English at Brooklyn College and an award-winning journalist. We've got a link to his column on She Said, which includes a complete list of Eric's favorite films about journalism. Thanks for listening, and look for new episodes of Labor Goes to the Movies in the weeks ahead. The only way these women are going to go on the record is if they all jump together. We're all here, Harvey. Who? have you talked to? I have three daughters and I don't want them to ever accept abuse or bullying. I'll go on the record. Go write. It's time to write. This is all going to come up. I was silenced. I want my voice back. <laughs>